0: Now, we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you
1: precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, how was uh, Camp Co Talk? You just got back last week, right?
0: Yeah, it was great, honestly. Nays, you know, I we go every year. I, I should say I go every year to this event for the last decade, basically. And uh, you know, it's a it's a mix of economists and uh, investors, philanthropists, uh, business folks, journalists. Usually, quite a few. Uh, and and you know, not only did we have great weather and great fishing, we had some great conversation.
1: I was so jealous seeing the various pictures you were posting out on Twitter. Just of fishing looked like fine dining, but to your point. Uh, most importantly, fantastic conversations. And I guess on that note, before we get to these uh, ETF topics I have, did you have any quick takeaways from uh, Camp Cotalk? Yeah, I mean, I had two and I put up two articles
0: today uh, covering this one sort of in a, in a more touchy feely zone, uh, despite the fact that I've spent the last two or three months out on the road meeting people. Uh, It really made me realize how important it is not just to have a coffee with somebody, but to create shared experiences. I think financial advisors really know this, right? I mean, whether it's uh, your regular golf game or a game of bridge or meeting at the Lions Club or whatever it is, something other than just the conversation, the conversation we've been having throughout the pandemic, getting out and actually having those shared experiences. I think that's really important. So that was that was a big takeaway for me. And then second, um, I, I, I posted a, a transcript, an edited transcript of a car ride I had with uh, Sam Reins from Corbu, one of the, you know, I think most interesting young economists out there right now. And obviously Barry Ritholtz, folks know from Masters in Business, Business and Ritholtz Wealth Management. Um, and we dug in pretty deep on labor, the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, the deglobalization or relocalization of American supply chains. I, and I walked away pretty hopeful overall. I, I mean, I definitely feel like there's a lot that we as a country need to do if we're going to be serious about things like onshoring semiconductors, et cetera. Uh, but I walked away feeling surprisingly hopeful that there's a lot of will to get those things done.
1: I think that came across in both of the pieces. I mean, there was definitely more of an optimistic tone. And as I was thinking about this, You know, the people that you have in the room there at Camp Kotak come from all walks of life, very diverse set of views. And I I was curious, just from a political perspective, you know, I like to stay out of political discussions, right? Especially on this podcast. (laughs) We have a wide range of listeners, all of them with differing views. So I'm not looking to turn into a a cable news show. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that the political discourse has been much more uh, cantankerous. Over the past decade or so, and I know it always is, but I do feel like things have definitely been much more polarizing. And I look even recently, I mean, I'm seeing stuff, you know, people talking about civil war and those sorts of things. I understand it's fringe, uh, you know, on, on both sides, but it is some scary stuff. I guess my question is, are you any more optimistic on the political side that people can... Uh, intelligently disagree with each other and move forward and not just immediately resort to mudslinging and and digging in on their positions. I just feel like that's one of the biggest issues we have. And I was curious if you saw, uh, you know, more of a bridge in the the discussions you had over the past week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first piece I wrote, which was I called Reality Tunnels, is really about that breaking down of barriers that I think has really exacerbated a lot of that cantankerousness, as you put it. I love that word. Uh, and, and I did walk away feeling pretty optimistic. You know, it it is a very diverse crew that shows up there in the woods of Maine every year. Some hardcore Republicans, some hardcore Democrats. Uh, we generally don't talk a lot of, about directly about politics because we're usually focused on the economy. Uh, but what I walked away with was a surprising amount of hope that people can actually listen to each other's opinions when you actually get in the same room and you treat each other like human beings. And I think in the age of the internet, uh, and certainly coming out of the isolation of the pandemic, I think a lot of us have forgotten what it's like to really be in that same room and shake somebody's hand face to face.
1: No, that's well said. I mean, I agree. I think we all know social media over the past decade plus that has not helped things. And there's been a lot of benefits to social media, right? But from a, a political standpoint, not great. But hey, let's leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> we won't head any further down the, uh, the political road. Let's get to some fun ETF topics. And I want to start with this wave of single stock and single bond ETFs. Yeah. So, All right. So look, I show there are currently 20 of these things on the market. There are 16 single stock ETFs, which, of course, these offer leverage and inverse exposure to stocks like Tesla, NVIDIA, Apple, Coinbase. And then there's one what all refer to as a risk managed ETF. This is from Innovator and offers exposure to Tesla up to a cap each quarter. And then you're protected from anything more than a a 10 percent decline. And then there are also now three single bond ETFs, which uh, offer exposure to on the run treasuries at different parts of the yield curve. Not only that, we recently saw filings from Roundhill for two single foreign stock ETFs. And I think what's noteworthy here, no leverage they're not inverse they're literally just one to one exposure to uh, saudi aramco and samsung what are your thoughts on all this do you like yeah, these yeah well let's
0: let, let's go in reverse order so the um, the sort of quasi depository receipt ones filed by roundhill for saudi aramco and samsung those at least i can come up with a very clear use case if you are an individual investor or even you know a portfolio manager who is primarily trading domestic equities it's really difficult to get exposure to something like direct shares of Samsung or Saudi Aramco because they don't trade in the U.S. They don't trade in a dollar form that you can easily access from your U.S. equity brokerage account with these products with, you know when and if they come to market it solves that problem. You now can get access to these international companies. I think there are plenty of folks who would love to be able to trade in and around Saudi Aramco, right? It's obviously an enormous player in the energy space. But if you're trading your own portfolio through your Schwab account, or your Fidelity account, you can't really get direct access there. So there, I at least see it as a a useful access vehicle. Interesting to point out that there were actually versions of these products filed, I want to say, in 2010, on a list of, I don't know, 50 or 180 effectively creating these ADRs in this direction where they were single holdings. So it is a case that people have talked about before, and I think that makes sense. The single leverage, single stock leverage ones, the Tesla versions and all, on all of their ilk, Uh, I have really mixed feelings about these guys, Nate, (laughs) because on the one hand, look, they're going to do what they say they're going to do, right? I mean, these are being run by companies that know what they're doing with major swap counterparties. You will, in fact, get the daily, you know, 1.25x of Tesla or the minus one of Tesla that you're trying to get. The problem is that because these are leveraged and inverse, we all know that there's this problem of folks who think they're buying for the long term and these are day trading vehicles, I think this is particularly dangerous with stocks like Tesla, which are retail darlings. It's really tempting for somebody to say, oh, I can get a little juice on my Tesla by buying this thing, not realizing they're going to have massive path dependency problems that could lead to significant underperformance of their expectations. And they're really, really, really expensive. Nobody should be holding these for a full year and eating the, what is it, 115, 1.15% you're paying on these things. So uh, that, that I'm concerned with. And there's some end-of-day trading concerns if these got really big. We talked about this two years ago a lot, Nate, when the VIX complex was blowing up. VIX ETPs ended up moving volatility around, moving the VIX pin, because they owned so much of the available volatility from the options strip underneath VIX. The same thing could happen here should we end up with a weird disconnect where the leverage and inverse single-stock ETPs become a significant percentage of the AUM or the market cap of these companies.
1: What about the single bond ETFs? What do you think about those?
0: The single bond ETFs, I think, are a little bit more interesting. Um, you know, the ones like something like U10, uh, which is always holding the current 10-year. That's an interesting liquidity play. It is the fact that the on-the-run bonds, the ones that are currently the live bonds, the most recent auction, trade differently and better than off-the-run bonds, bonds that are now, you know, 91 days old plus. Um, that creates opportunities for people to build really interesting models around m- sort of the microstructure changes in the bond market. Um, I, I, so I, I see them as targets for people running sophisticated models that really require that kind of precision. I think that's a very narrow use case, uh, but at least I can come up with it.
1: Okay, so <laughs> several questions that your comments have generated for me, as usual. Let's go back to these single foreign stock ETFs. The question I have here is. Do you think the SEC is going to approve these? Because obviously, when you look at ADRs, I mean, there are listing requirements for ADRs, right? There, there are certain disclosures that have to be made, and that'll be required on the on the single-stock ETFs as well. But these feel a little bit like an end-around to that ADR process. Do you think these will ultimately get approved?
0: Um, I think it's going to be difficult for them to not approve them, right? Because uh, certainly, it is totally acceptable, acceptable to say take 15 of these stocks and put them in a portfolio, and none of them are listed in the US, and there's no ADR listing requirement issue there. Uh, so, if, the, if they if they dinged these products solely based on the fact that, well, they should be US listed, that's a real trick. I'd love to see the language. <laughs> I think that was a real tough one for them to walk that line. Um, so, I suspect that they'll be approved and they'll get some moderate amount of use. I don't think they're as controversial as some of the other products.
1: Okay, so going back to those other products, just the the Tesla leverage or inverse exposure, you heard me mention at the top that last week we got this news that the Massachusetts securities regulators looking into these. Yeah. You and I talked when these first launched about all of the uh, comments from the SEC that were pretty inflammatory towards these products. We know, sort of backdropping all of this, there was that FINRA proposal earlier this year on more complex. ETPs. My, my question is, what do you think ultimately happens here? Because we know ETF issuers are going to be aggressive in launching these products, especially if they do have su- uh, some success. And we see assets going into these products, but clearly regulators aren't overly thrilled about these. What, what happens longer term? Like, do you think we ultimately get a more robust regulatory framework from the SEC around more complex products? I know that's where you think it should reside. I, I'm just curious, how does this all play out? I actually
0: think it's much more likely we see something definitive out of Finra um, about how these products are sold, right? That's what Finra gets to, to regulate. They regulate broker dealers and sales practices and things like that. So they're the ones who could, for instance, tell Merrill Lynch or Schwab that they have to put up certain disclosures between uh, certain kinds of investors. That advisors have to make certain kinds of disclosures. I could that that was their whole complex product. Uh, you know, regulation proposal that they put out earlier in the year, I think that was March, um, I could see that happening and these products very easily getting scooped up into that complex products definition. I think it's extremely unlikely that the SEC somehow backtracks Uh, and forces these products to delist or suspend the listings of new ones. I mean, they already put inverse Tesla out there, right? So it's like, it's not like they're holding back because they were only going to hang on to, you know, I don't know, 3M and Exxon or something like that, lower vol stocks. So I think it's very unlikely that they put this genie back in the bottle. Um, I think it's very unlikely that any kind of state inquiry into this changes the name of the game at all. I think all of this puts more impetus on FINRA to do something on the education side until perhaps we have a a full turnover in Congress and the White House and actually pass legislation around these kinds of things. I don't think there's a chance. And uh, to be clear, I don't think there's a chance of like fundamental securities legislation in the next six years.
1: How many of these things do you think we could see launch? I believe right now there are like 65 filings with the SEC. I've said just for reference, I wouldn't be surprised to see hundreds of these launch, if not a thousand. But what do you yeah, think? No, I think
0: it's in the thousands, which is one of the reasons I'm a little concerned would be a strong word. It makes your and my life a pain in the neck. Right. We don't need we don't need two thousand of these things out there trading. But there's but if you think about it, just under Tesla, right, not only do we have, as you point out, the options overlay strategy, there's a somewhat similar set of those, I think it's CARS or e-cars coming from Simplify, which I don't believe is a single stock, I think it's a handful. Um, of stocks. Then you've got all the various flavors of up and down leverage you could provide on top of that. It's not inconceivable that the 50 most traded stocks in the country could have 10 versions of, of single stock ETPs on each ticker. That's just those top 50. So if you talk about expanding this out into sort of a tradable set of, say, the, all the stocks in the S&P 500, easily 1500 to 3000 securities. That's a pain in the neck.
1: Hey, it makes our job difficult but also a lot of fun. It
0: does. Gives <laughs> us something to talk about, Nate.
1: Hey, you know a real concern there which I know you've highlighted as well. I this ticker confusion, right? If you have 50 yeah. variations of of Tesla ETFs, uh we've seen just with single stocks where there's confusion between the ticker symbols, right? You have one company that is you know, you have Zoom and then another company Zoom growth or whatever and they have similar tickets. Or, like, or
0: we had met we had meta and meta and Facebook for a while. <laughs>
1: I think that could be a real issue with investors.
0: Oh, it's a hundred percent an issue. And I think that's why the gating at the at the you know, face of the coal mine, right, when you're hitting your ticket order in your Schwab account, I think that's where you're gonna start seeing Uh, At least some strong guidance about how to approach these things, you know, popping up things that says you are not buying Tesla shares. You are buying an ETP with a 115 expense ratio that's not going to perform the way you think it does. Uh, I think that would be prudent. Mm -hmm. All
1: right. Another story that I'm tracking is these uh, new ETFs or these new ETF filings from Toroso. Now, now listen to this. These are filings for three Meet Kevin ETFs. That's actually what these are called. (laughs) Meet Kevin ETFs. I He's, love yeah, it. Yeah, so these are three ETFs covering what I'll call uh, disruptive or innovative tech. But here's the interesting part: these are seeking to leverage the personal brand of a guy named Kevin Paffrath. Uh, who, who, listeners, if you don't know who this is, don't worry, I didn't either. But he has nearly yeah. two million <laughs> YouTube subs. How do you not know? How do you not know me, Kevin? I, I mean, had no on. idea who this was. He has a few hundred Twitter, thousand uh, uh, Twitter, uh, f- sorry, a few hundred thousand Twitter followers. He has a website at meetkevin.com and. He offers tips on like uh, real estate and, and investing, but if I were to summarize the situation overall, Dave, this is somebody with no uh, professional portfolio management experience that I'm aware of. Oh,
0: it's way worse than you think. I've been following this kid for a while because um, I like try. To, I try to keep my fingers in sort of YouTube finance and TikTok finance and understand. Like, I mean, that's sort of my job is to try to figure out where the future is going. This guy's been around for a few years. He's a certain ilk in this. Uh, sort of YouTube finance community. Real estate seems to be the big attractor. Most of these folks are in the real estate world at some level. Um, And I've watched these guys' videos. And the uh, the funniest part is if you go back a year or two, he was vehemently talking about how nobody should ever take his advice on stock investing because it was far too complicated. And real estate was where all the money was at. And that's where he was going to focus. And now clearly he's had a change of heart and now thinks he's an expert on stocks uh obviously nobody should be investing in these products i mean i feel like i almost feel like we don't even need to be saying it this is somebody who literally two years ago told you not to give him money to put in the stock market
1: well let me ask you this and i'll, I'll try to take the other side in that you may recall last year we talked uh, a little bit about influencer etfs when we saw um barstool's day portnoy, portnoy. right he was yeah. involved with that van social sentiment etf buzz and then Maybe to a lesser degree, because this individual operates in the investment advisory space, but uh, Ross Gerber with the advisor shares Gerber Kawasaki ETF, right? GK. Buzz had some initial success, but then assets have steadily declined. GK hasn't really done much of anything. It has like 15 million in assets. Do you think there's any uh, path to success for influencer ETFs? Because, you know, I've talked about this uh, before. The ETF wrapper is being used as a vehicle to monetize social influence. And you know, we can talk about whether that, that's good or bad. I, I guess what I'm asking is do you think that these products can ultimately find success for the right individual?
0: Uh, yeah, the, the old fashioned way, right? Prove that you're a really good investor for a decade and make your make your make your fame on that, and then people will happily give you money. I mean, look at Jeff Gunlock at Double Line, right? Uh, you know, that's how you that's how you become an influencer that generates AUM, is you become really good at managing money. Uh, I'm not sure that we can say that about, you know, Dave Portnoy or me, Kevin. Um, Right now, again, I don't want to I'm not disparaging these people as individuals. My point is, if you're going to hire an active manager, you should have some fundamental belief that they have an edge. That's the reason you pay up for an active manager. If they don't have an edge, if they don't have a believable edge, you should be in an index fund. I don't think that that's controversial. So, Uh, You know, I look, it's possible that Meet Kevin's ETFs will launch and he will have a billion dollars in them and will flip heads on that that coin a dozen times in a row and will be the best performing fund in the world next year. Uh, I I won't change my opinion that you probably still shouldn't have put money with somebody who is telling you not to invest with them.
1: All right. Uh, I I love that. So look, uh, in terms of having an edge, let's close this week with these NightShares ETFs. I'm going to be joined next week by the CEO of NightShares, Bruce Levine, uh, who, as you know, they launched these two ETFs back in June. The Nightshare's 500 ETF ticker NSPY and the Nightshare's 2000 ETF ticker IWM. And uh, in a nutshell, they seek to capture only the night performance of the S&P 500 and then uh, the, the Russell 2000, respectively, right? So they're only invested from market close to market open each day. And I caused a little bit of a stir a few weeks ago, Dave, by uh, pointing out that the performance of these hasn't been great so far. So let me just give you these numbers. Since launch... NSPY is down about 4%, while the S&P 500 is up 6%, so 10% differential there. And then wow, NIWM is down 6%, while the Russell 2000 is up 9%. Jeez. So yeah, here, here's my and question.
0: And that's, that's what, eight weeks? Yeah, like and, weeks? and that's why it, yeah. that's
1: why it popped up on my radar. I mean, this is a short time frame, so it wouldn't have been surprising to see a difference, you know, a few percent, right? But th- these are big differentials. And I remember... Like over the years, so if we go back over the past five years, I kept seeing this idea pop up on Twitter, and the pushback that I always saw was that trans- uh, transaction costs eat up any outperformance. But you look at this performance differential right now, it looks like there's a lot more going on than just transaction costs. And I know it's still very early, but do, do you think these can work longer term?
0: Well, it's not just transaction costs. It's, it's, it's a rival cost, right? I mean, you have to take into account your market move, the information that you're providing to the market because you're a known trader, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that is all technically transaction costs because it takes it from the point of idea to implementation. And that's where these seem to be falling down. Um, I'm not horribly surprised. I mean, as you pointed out, this has been a bit of a Twitter cause celeb for years. Lots of folks I know have written papers, commented on papers, uh, and it's fascinating. And I'm very grateful for Bruce for actually putting these products out into the streets so that we could actually test this, you know, and get it past the hypothetical stage. But it certainly does look at this point like there's a lot going on here that's not in the favor of nightshares. Now, I've heard some... Uh, some counters that, you know, because we've been in a little bit of a down news cycle, the overnight news has been particularly bad. And then we've had the rallies during the day, and that's not the normal thing. But, you know, look, it's never normal. So you always have to deal with the market that you showed up at. Uh, And at the moment, the market that these funds have showed up at has not been favorable. And that's a heck of a hole to dig out of, too, Nate. It's like even if this turns and the fall just is not completely in their favor, that's a long way to dig yourself back out.
1: Well, I can't wait to uh, visit with Bruce next week. You heard me say at the top, you know, it's funny. I actually think NightShares and then Bond Blocks, who I'll be visiting with Bond Blocks' uh, Joanne Bianco here in a moment. I think these are my two favorite new ETF entrants this year. And that's actually one of the reasons I've been tracking these NightShares ETFs more closely. I'm honestly just fascinated by them because, again, I saw this idea batted around for for several years. And I I think you're right. I think Bruce and NightShares deserve a lot of credit for bringing these to market. I certainly hope they have success. But it is a big hole early on, so it'll be interesting to see. I
0: I hope they keep them alive, right? I mean, these are are funds that need to live for three to five years for us to really be able to understand. But if there are not a lot of assets in them, I'm not expecting anybody to keep them open out of charity.
1: No, I agree, and that's the challenge, right? Because ultimately it does come down to performance with products like these, and if the performance isn't there, then the assets aren't going to follow. So it it might actually be fun to see these have some outperformance, get some assets in them, to your point. So they can stay alive and be out the Yeah, then we can
0: analyze the data.
1: That's right. Well, Dave, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Always fun chatting. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, thanks for having me, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify.